0: Now, here is what's happening. We are coming, well, we we finished several weeks on interpretation of Scripture, and uh, how the Old Testament pointed to Christ, and before that, just principles for biblical interpretation. That must have taken us six or eight weeks, but I thought we'd just detour around to that whole topic. Now, I'm going back to, Trent, is this too loud? It's a little bit too loud. I think it's, is it too loud? No. I was just getting a little echo. Um, Now I'm going back to the book, Systematic Theology, and I'm chapter 7. We'll go to 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, just like this. So we've got this week and next week on the doctrine of Scripture, two more aspects of it, and then on into the doctrine of God and how do we know God exists and attributes of God, etc. This morning, I'm coming to, I think what we could say is a very controversial and very emotionally difficult topic to deal with, especially in modern culture. And it has to do with the question of the necessity of the Bible, that is, do you need the Bible to know about God, as opposed to knowing about God without any books, but also as opposed to, our other religions also a good way to find out about God. Are there many paths to one true God? That's, you know, what some people say. And when we talk about the necessity of the Bible, we're smack dab in the middle of the question of, you have to come to salvation through believing this and through believing in Christ. Or can sincere religious people who are Buddhists or Hindus or Mormons or Muslims or whatever, can they also be saved? That's and that is a question where I think the answer that I'm going to give here and the answer that the Bible gives is one that's not popular on Leary King Live, <laughs> but it's one he's always going to ask. So let's let's go on and talk about this, and I think as we work through these topics, the question is, well, let's be honest with what, uh, what the Bible says. Okay, the four characteristics of Scripture here, for what purposes... Is the Bible necessary? And I'm going to say there are some things that you really have to have the Bible for. But then, how much can people know about God without the Bible? And I think there are some things that people can know, even if they don't have a Bible, just by looking at the world and just a sense of God in their own hearts. So let's, uh, let's go on and look at that. First, um, the necessity of, of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the Gospel. That's number one. That's the controversy. And for maintaining spiritual life, that has a lot of practical application to our lives. And for knowing God's will, practical application. But it's not necessary, I'm going to come to this later, it's not necessary for knowing that God exists, or for knowing something about God's character and his moral laws. So I'm going to say people have a sense that there is a God and that he has standards of right and wrong, but apart from the Bible, they don't know how to be saved. That's that's the bottom line. So that's, now if you want to leave, I've already told you what I'm going to say, but uh, but uh, let's see if we can get into this. First, the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel, and the main passage uh, that talks about this, I think, is Romans 10, 13 to 17. Paul um, is quoting the Old Testament. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how? How are they to call on him in whom they have nev- not believed? That is, how can you how can you pray out and pray and say, "Oh God, please help me," if if you haven't believed in in him, if you, if you don't even you know have any confidence in who he is, just calling out into the blue? How can you call on someone you've not believed in? And how are you? To, how are they to believe in whom of who in him of whom they have never heard? That is, how can you how can you how can you believe in God if you've never heard of him or? Or known anything true about him. And how can they hear? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, and here's the punchline, the bottom line of the paragraph. So faith comes by from hearing. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, or what would be the, the message about Christ, or uh, what is found in the Bible, the teaching found in the Bible. We've got to hear that, and that's how we come to faith. Otherwise, people can't believe in someone they've never heard of. And that's the that's the point. You can't believe in somebody you don't know anything about. Um, you just can't believe. And so now we kind of detour just a little bit from that. Well, do you have to really be saved through Christ, or is there salvation in another way? Well, salvation in a number of places, the Bible says salvation only comes through belief in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him, John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's right in the context of John 3.16. God gave his only Son, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's in the context of the idea of God sending his son to be the Savior who would pay the penalty for our sins. And here um, uh, we have uh, John recording these words. If you don't believe, you're condemned already. He's assuming that people are guilty and they need a solution. They need a Savior. And uh, if you haven't believed in Christ, then you don't have a solution. Uh, that's the situation everybody else. Everybody finds themselves in. Jesus said in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." This is a really exclusive statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's that's just a direct contradiction to a commonly held view in society. All different religions are many paths to one God, and Jesus says. Uh, or many ways to one god Jesus says, I'm the way. And there's no other way. And there's no other way to come to the Father through me. And when we think about it, when we think that our problem is sin that has alienated us from God, then we need a solution for that sin. And, well, then it makes sense. The only way to get to God is if someone pays the penalty for our sin. There's only one person in the world in the whole history of the world that ever paid the penalty for our sin. And you know, sometimes you just need a quick sentence to boil down what you believed kind of as a starting point for further conversation. I remember one time there back when we were living in Illinois, we had friends, and the friend was an emergency room doctor in town and and he knew that I was a theology teacher, and he said, Oh, Wayne, Wayne, uh you know, sometimes you ought to come to this discussion group on healing that we have at our hospital. There are all sorts of kinds of spiritual healing we're talking about. And I said, well, yeah, that'd be interesting. I said, I, you know, but um, you, you might find that my view is sort of exclusive. And <laughs> he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, so now I've got one shot, see, and have got one sentence. I said, well, there's only one person in history who ever died to pay for people's sins. See that just that focuses the issue. Buddha, Confucius, um, Muhammad, yeah, they, they didn't they didn't even claim to pay for people's sins. They were talking about ways to get to God and different systems. But Christianity is unique. It's it's a means of dealing with sin. And so that's why Jesus can say, no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only person that provided a solution for our sins. He's the one who was both God and man and paid the penalty that we deserved as the substitute uh, for us. Acts 4.12, here's the early proclamation of the gospel by the apostles, right as the church was beginning. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No is salvation in nobody else, not any other religious leader. Now, if you just think that all the religions of the world, like that atheist religion professor that I sat next to on the plane a few weeks ago, she, she, she thinks that all religions are just man-made inventions. Just people sit around and they get these interesting ideas, and, and the religion is just a human activity. Well, if you think that, then of course, why is one religion any better than any other? But Here, there is salvation in no one else. Yeah, if Jesus is the only person who died for our sins, that makes sense. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, same theme. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is Jesus' death to pay for our sins, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So he's the only one who is both in his person, both God and man. He came to represent God to us. He came then as a man to die in our place. So I don't think, if we're just honest with these verses, I don't think there's any question that a lot of passages in the Bible say there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just there. And the whole system of what the Bible teaches, that we are sinful, we need a solution. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't pay for our sins. What do you think? Sacrifice a goat or a bull and that pays for your sins? No, not quite. So uh, there's got to be someone who could be our substitute and pay for our sins. So the system of the Bible indicates that. But, having said that, there are still other people proposing there should be other ways to God. Um, Now... Before I get to those other proposals, the question is, well, wait a minute, here's an objection. If salvation only comes through belief in Jesus Christ, how could people in the Old Covenant be saved, that is, in the Old Testament? Well, they could be saved through trusting in Christ. This doesn't contradict the idea that you have to be saved through Christ. It's just that people could look forward to the promises about Christ and God's words that Jesus was going to come were trustworthy enough that people could depend on those, as opposed to us who have God's word that Jesus already came and we're looking backward. Those were promises looking forward to Jesus. So here, uh, talking about Old Testament people, faith, Hebrews 11.1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen for by the people of old, received their commendation or approval from God. And then Hebrews 11 goes on with many, many examples of Old Testament people who all died in faith, Hebrews 11:13, 13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That is, they were looking forward to the Messiah to come and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And uh, one example, he, Moses considered the reproach of Christ. It's really amazing he would use that. Phrase, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses is looking forward to Jesus. For Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham was looking forward, and of course, as I explained a couple weeks ago, when Abraham sacrificed Isaac on the altar, but then didn't have to because God spared him, it was... God teaching Abraham through an acted out event in his life that he needed a substitute, a sacrifice to pay for his sins, but Isaac wasn't good enough. God was going to provide a better sacrifice later. So all of these people were looking forward to Christ, and they trusted in him, and they were saved through him then. But could other people be saved who did not have the words of the Bible? This is the question, and this is just, it's it's emotionally a hard question to ask. Are we really saying that people who didn't have the words of the Bible just weren't saved? It does not seem likely that people could be saved who didn't have the words of the Bible or the words of God that were told to them and passed down from you know, Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel and, and then to, to Seth and then to his descendants. They could have, they said, well, God spoke to us and here are his words. So even if they weren't written down at the beginning, they could have them told to them. But if they didn't have that, it doesn't seem likely that people could be saved who didn't have the words of the Bible because the pattern of events in the Bible seems to be that the only foundation firm enough to rest one's faith on is the word of God spoken or written concerning salvation, which was given in brief form from the beginning. So I think right back from the time Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve had some words from God that gave them an indication that uh, salvation would come, and they had those to depend on. And so uh, Genesis 3.15 where God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The idea that there is a descendant or offspring of the woman coming who will destroy the serpent by crushing his head or bruising his head, that's a very early word of promise. And then God made skins, uh, uh, clothing of animal skins, clothed Adam and Eve, and uh, even though he cast them out of the garden, there was an indication that there was some kind of salvation coming. So... There were words from God they had to depend on. Um, And so this is, people say, well, couldn't people kind of out in some remote tribe think this way? Oh, the world gives evidence that there's a creator. There must be a great creator. He's wise and powerful. And I've got in my heart a sense of right and wrong, and I know I haven't lived up to it. So I know there's a God. I know I haven't lived up to it. Could they have in their heart sort of just thinking, well, this God must be loving enough that he sent his own son to die for my sins? See, that's a jump that I don't think, I mean, you might speculate on that, but it'd be very, I don't think it's something that anybody would dream up. Even I know that God would be three persons instead of one God, and then that he would send his son to become a, a human being, a man. And then, even if they thought it might happen, would they have enough confidence in their speculation? To rest their faith in it? Would it be a firm foundation to rest faith in? It doesn't seem to me likely, apart from God telling us, somehow, how we would be saved. And so, even now, Adam and Eve had children, Cain and Abel and uh and uh, the lord had regard for abel and his offering that is god already was dealing with cain and abel from the very earliest moment of of human history and was letting abel know that he was pleased with his sacrifice which i think was looking forward to the messiah hebrews 11:4 by faith abel this is the first this is the third person in the whole world By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So um, I think we've got words of God, talking to individual people, and Abel, even Abel, from the very beginning, as with the promise to Adam and Eve, he was someone who had faith looking forward to a Messiah to come, although he knew it in very faint form. So again, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ or word about Christ, through the the words uh, telling people about the way of salvation. Now, there are alternative views, and I've listed these, A, B, C, D, E, um, on the outline here. Other views of how people can be saved. One is universalism. All people will be saved because God loves everybody and he won't judge anybody. That is probably the default view of most people in our culture. They think, well, of course we're going to heaven. And, you know, all these popular movies about people dying, and I can't remember what they are now, but the people dying, and what happens to them? They all go to a very happy place, right? Or isn't there a book out, Five People Who Meet in Heaven, or something like that? It isn't. You don't sell books on five people who meet in hell. I mean... <laughs> That's that's a that's a non-starter on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> I wonder if someone would want to write that. No, it wouldn't sell. Who would buy it? I mean, not, no, I'm not going to buy it. I mean, the people just they, they think so highly of themselves. They think, of course, I deserve to be saved. That kind. Of, so that's that's universalism. There's another one, uh, sort of related to that, and that is religious pluralism. Not just everybody will be saved, but all sincere religious people will be saved. In other words, all religions are different paths to the one true God. And uh, that's the Larry King question that he asks Christians when they come on the show. Are you saying if people don't believe in Jesus, that they'll go to hell? See, And I think if you're ever on Larry King, (laughs) to be honest, in those kind of situations... If you're on Larry King Live and he says to you, do you really believe that? Are you so intolerant? Do you really believe that people who don't trust in Jesus are going to hell? Do you know what answer you should give? You should say, yes. And see where the conversation goes from there. (laughs) But uh, I don't think you should beat around the bush. Did I tell you about the time where I... It, so when I was in, in uh, doctoral work in England and took, spent a summer in Germany, and uh, I, had had some, I had had one crash course uh, in German before I went, just one summer uh, college course before I went to England, and I needed more German. And so um, we went to Germany for a summer, Margaret and I and Elliot, who was only one at the time, And I took this conversational German course. And it was really fun. There were about 30 students in the class. And um, um, people from Canada and the United States and Australia, people from Turkey, Italy, France, everybody coming wanted to learn German. So it was a mixed group. And at at the end of the six or eight weeks, second year class, our assignment was to give a five-minute talk in German to the class about any subject you wanted to talk about. Ah, uh, so uh came my turn to give my talk, and I had really worked on it, and I gave this talk about how uh, we're all sinful before God, and Jesus is the only uh, way to salvation, and we need to trust in him for forgiveness of sins. I don't know if I said only, Jesus is, you know, the way we trust him for forgiveness of sins, and when I talked, the room just became dead silent, and people were just, Absolutely focused on what I was saying, and I just think there was a really strong sense of conviction from the Holy Spirit on all these students in the class. But then after the five then you had to have take a few minutes of question and answer from the class. So first question from the back of the room Are you saying that people who don't believe in Jesus or people are you saying that people who've never heard of Jesus will go to hell? And I wasn't ready for the question. And I kind of hemmed and hawed, and I beat around the bush and said, you know, that's a hard question. People have different answers to it. And I kind of came around in the end to saying yes. But by the time I hemmed and hawed for a minute or so, I completely lost the whole audience. Uh, Because people just instinctively, they reason so fast. People never heard Jesus can be saved. Well, I haven't heard too much about Jesus. I can probably save too. I don't think I'm going to listen anymore. And that's what happened. And I, I regretted that then. I think that by by being embarrassed of the truth, I lost the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the room. Fast forward to another time with a friend who was just interested in coming to church with us, came to visit one time, and talking, 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 as we're driving home, and, and he was saying, well, Wayne, now, are you saying that people who don't believe in Jesus will go to hell? And I said, yes you know what happened? He just continued asking questions. He was still interested. Um, another time we were in China and this uh, guide that had been with us, helping us, kind of helping Margaret because our kids were younger. And for ten, nine or 10 days, we'd travel different things. I'd been teaching in certain uh, kind of classroom situations. And then um, one day, the day before we left, Margaret and I said to her, Miss Lee, could we, uh, would you take us to town to get some uh, coffee mugs, or tea mugs, and, and uh, some mug? and so she figured out a taxi for us, so just Margaret and me and Miss Lee in the taxi, none of these other guards or guides around, and, uh, and uh, so we could talk privately, and she knew we were a Christian group, but she didn't know much about it. She'd never read the Bible, so i shared the gospel with her in the taxi ride, just really briefly. She had two questions. Tell me again, how can I get rid of this sin? those are exact words. And the second was so I did. The second was if I don't believe in Jesus will I go to hell? And I said yes. And I think there's no sense beating around the bush. I mean that's what the gospel is, but it's good news that there is a solution for our sins. Apart from that, nobody has good news. Then nobody can be saved. That's bad news. So, uh, this is religious pluralism, though. All sincere religious people will be saved. All religions are different past the one true God. That's a different view. I don't think the Bible teaches that. <laughs> I know it's not your fault, Trent. What is it? Something. Something static. I don't know. All right, I'm going to keep on talking. There we go. Inclusivism. Here's another idea. Oh, here's here's something. Well, okay, people have to be saved through Jesus and his death on the cross. But you know what? Jesus includes everybody. So people can only be saved through Christ, but they don't have to know about it. All people will ultimately find out that they were saved by Christ's work. They were included. This is inclusivism. They were included in Christ's work, even though they'd never heard of him. Okay, that's kind of an alternative. So people are proposing this to say, okay, Jesus' death paid for our sins, but actually paid for everybody's sins. And so even if they don't trust him, never heard of him, never believed in him, they'll still be saved. Now the problem is all those verses that say um, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. And uh, there's no other name. Or how do they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how do they believe in him of whom they have never heard? I think you can't really answer those from that position. Then another position is annihilationism. Unbelievers will not be punished after they die, or they won't be punished for very long. They'll be annihilated, and they'll just cease to exist. And I say, see chapter 56 on Final Judgment. About 56 weeks, actually about 80 weeks from now, we'll probably get to that. Um, But I don't think the Bible teaches that either. Post-mortem evangelism is still another thing. After unbelievers die, if they didn't trust in Christ or they didn't hear about him, they'll be given another opportunity to trust in Christ. The problem with those, those views is there just doesn't seem, to me anyway, to be evidence in the Bible that those views are right. And I'm in the position now where I've sometimes said to people, you know, if you and I sat down and made up our own religion, we might make up one of those things. They sound nice, but in fact, we don't have a choice of sitting down and making up our own religion if, in fact, this is God's word and he's spoken to us through this alone. So the position I have I didn't choose the name for it. The position I have is called exclusivism. Only those who have heard of Christ and trusted in him will be saved. And I think that's what I think that's what the Bible says in those verses we just looked at. Now, the word exclusivism sounds kind of negative and I didn't choose that term, but that's what it's commonly called. No. What that does, it is it has given the great motivation for Christian mission work throughout the world, and that's basically why we send missionaries all around the world from Scottsdale Bible, and that's basically why we share the gospel with others, because it is good news and people need to hear this good news. Um, Is it possible that people could hear about Jesus without having a Bible? Well, they could hear from a radio broadcast, sure. They could hear from the Jesus video film that tells the story of the gospel. That's basically telling the story of the gospel. They could hear from a traveling evangelist walking through different provinces in India or China uh, and uh, speaking the good news, just word of mouth. Is it possible that God could... Send an angel to tell somebody in a far-off region about the message of Jesus? Or reveal himself to people in a dream? What is happening in the last 10, 15 years, there are more and more reports of people in Muslim countries that are just so hostile to the Christian message. People, while they're sleeping, they see this dream of Jesus appearing to them and talking to them. And... Uh, But when I've heard these reports, usually what happens is the next few days, then Christian missionaries come, or the Jesus film comes, or something like that. So it seems to be God preparing. Could it be that God would, in a special way, by an angel or by a dream, appear directly to people? I am not going to say that's impossible. That could be another way that people would hear about Jesus. It just seems to me, when I go back to Romans 10 that Paul's not encouraging us to depend on that or to think of that as the normal thing that happens. Um, um, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so it's the idea of uh, the need to send missionaries. And to send, and that's why Paul suffered so much and was willing to sacrifice his whole life to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. So I end up holding point F. Now, I'm just going to take a moment on this, and uh, um, and we may come back to it at a future point. The question is, is that fair? For people who haven't heard of Jesus not to be saved. And I think the response to that is, well, let's understand what fair is. Fair is nobody is saved. Zero out of the whole human race. Because we've sinned and we've willfully turned against God and he doesn't have any obligation to save anybody. And the example that shows that to us is the angels. Because a large group, many thousands, I don't know how many, we don't know, angels who were moral creatures that had moral choice at some point early in the history of the world, they rebelled against God and became demons and Satan. And they, they, they left their proper place, and, they, and they, uh, they turned against God, and God saved zero of them. And I think that's a reminder to us that God could have saved zero from the human race. This room could be completely empty this morning, and there could be nobody here and no church, and that would be fair, and we couldn't complain because we'd ch- chosen to rebel against God. And so if God saved out of the whole human race as as many people as he saved angels, that's fair. Okay, now saying that's fair, if God saved five people out of the whole human race, that would be mercy. See, that would be grace. That would be more than people deserve. If he saved 10 or 15 or 100 people, that'd be amazing. He saved all these people that were rebelling against him and, and didn't have a right to be saved. But God hasn't just saved five, he hasn't just saved a 100, he's saved what the book of Revelation calls a great multitude whom no one can count from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. Just a huge number, and that's just overwhelming mercy. (laughs) So that helps me understand the issue of fairness. Vic? Right. Okay, the question from Vic is, is is this post-mortem evangelism related to ideas? Some people have heard, I haven't heard it, but that you're saying that during a future time, a millennial reign of Christ on the earth, that people who haven't believed in him will come back to life and have a second chance. But then you kind of answered it, if they didn't believe in Christ the first time, what's to expect that they would believe in him the second time? Again, I would say that speculation, I just don't know anything in the Bible to support it. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know. I don't know, uh, if, you know, if you remember where you read it, I, I just, I'm not sure. Um, it, it's, it's, I know there's something in us that says we want to do this, but I'm just not, I'm not finding, to be honest, I'm just not finding evidence in the Bible to support this idea. So, so that's where we are. Now, what did Phoenix Seminary do? About two, three years ago, we revised, we've got one statement of faith for the faculty that's longer and more detailed. Then we've got a statement of faith for students that we just asked them to affirm some basic things. Uh, uh, and they know this coming in. But in order to graduate, kind of as a product control. <laughs> that is, so you know what you're getting when you hire somebody from Phoenix Seminary. And so uh, one of the things we did was we took the Statement of Faith from the NAE, National Association of Evangelicals. And it was pretty good. But um, we kind of um, just tweaked it a little bit. with, uh, And the phrases in italics indicate that we modified some of the wording. I don't remember all of it, but here's how it ended up. We believe that all human beings are lost and sinful by nature for their salvation, regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and for all who have the mental capacity, personal faith in Jesus Christ are absolutely essential. Salvation is a gift from God, it is not earned. We put in this, for all who have the mental capacity, to to take care of the special cases of infants dying in infancy or people with severe mental retardation who um, maybe wouldn't have the mental capacity to, uh, to trust in Christ. So, But Phoenix Seminary kind of said, it seems to us to be clear enough in the Bible that it's something that we want to affirm and have students uh, believe. So that's, uh, any more questions about that? That's the, hard, that's the emotionally hard question. Phil? They trusted in God's words of promise in the Old Testament. Phil is bringing up the question of Rahab, a Canaanite woman in Joshua 2, and she said, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the earth melt before you, for we have heard... As you hear, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you will dealt kindly with me. So, She she knew something, that the Lord God of Israel was Lord of heaven and earth and was the way of salvation. The jump to Christ, Christ, she may have, I mean, that may have been kind of an initial faith and they told her more. She became part of the people of Israel and came to further faith at that point. I'm just not sure. Special work of God in her heart. Yeah. Yeah, John. This is a really, I mean, this is just a really good question where John's saying if uh, if you're saying for all who you're giving an out for people who don't have mental capacity what about people in the middle of a jungle who've never heard of Christ it isn't that they don't have the mental capacity but they don't have the information right so wouldn't there be a similar path and here's the answer not you know you just have to decide whether you think this is a good answer or not um People who are living out in an unreached area have made moral decisions. They've chosen to do things wrong. They have a conscience, and they choose to violate them. So there is a little different situation there from an infant who just dies, who's stillborn or something like that. Um, so and, and for the infants who die, we've got this situation of David... King David, when his child with Bathsheba dies just a few days after birth, and David then gets up and washes himself and cleans himself up, and he says, he shall not come to me, I shall go to him. That is, he thinks that he's going to see his son again. And so there's some indication. And there's John the Baptist in Luke 1.15 that says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And I think that means that he had been born again right as before he was born. A special work of God. So we've got some indication of that happening in certain cases with infants, um, but there just doesn't seem to be Bible verses that would lead us to think that about adults or grown, you know, people who have grown and made moral choices for themselves. So that's the, you know, that's the answer I'd give. Bill. Okay. And I'll just repeat again, Bill, because the room voices don't care except with the microphone. Uh, that uh, you had thought or had heard that at the bima, which is the Greek word for judgment seat, or the bema seat, that at the judgment seat people who haven't heard will be given an opportunity to trust in Christ. I don't know of any verse in the Bible that supports that. Now, look, as you're asking this, what's going to happen when, when the Lord comes back and everybody comes before Him? we're going to say, oh, this is very fair and this is very right. Might there be some very good surprises that would make us all happy? I'm not going to say that that's impossible. What I'm going to say is I don't find evidence in here that gives me warrant to believe that. What I see in here is we've got to go tell people because otherwise we have no reason here to think that they're saved unless they hear. Are there unusual situations? Yeah, might be, but that's not what we should, that's not the normal thing that we should depend on. Um, I, and look, I mean, I, this isn't one of the topics that I enjoy teaching on. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm honest. Uh, I've got to be fair to the Bible, but I'm just, you know And and I understand it, it. it's troubling to us. It should be troubling to us because... We, God has put in our hearts a love for other people. Um, and so it, I understand it's hard. Yeah. Um, I can't see your name take. Nadine. Yeah. Nadine is saying in Romans 1, doesn't it say that the evidence about God is plain? Romans 1, 18, 19, 20, it does in there. So people are without excuse. I think it does say that. Yeah, Steve. I'm not finding the verse in Romans 4 that you're looking at. Of what verse? Romans 4.15, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 5.13, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Probably 5.13 is the place where I would go. Um, Sin is not counted where there is no law. I think, all means before the written law was given. But then the next verse says, even though they didn't have a written law, they were still accountable because, verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, it wasn't against a specific verbal command of God, but it was still sin and death still reigned. So it's a kind of a, a going around the reasoning to say, well, since everybody died, they were still held accountable. Of an infant, yeah. yeah, yeah which would give idea to the fact that if people haven't willfully sinned, they don't have a knowledge of what is right and wrong, and therefore that would give support to the idea that where people don't haven't made moral choices that they would be uh, that that God wouldn't hold them accountable as possible yeah. e g. Melchizedek had some special revelation from God, quite a bit, I think, where God appeared to him. So now, and what about the wise men who came to visit Jesus? Did an angel appear to them, or did they have? So there were individuals, perhaps, that God came to somehow and gave some kind of teaching about himself. But I still think they needed some words from God. Anybody else? Anything else over here? Yeah, Jean. Right. Uh, are there other materials to read? I, you know, I don't. I'm not sure. The people use the uh, more than a carpenter by Josh McDowell. They use the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. <coughs> the case, <coughs> excuse me, the Case for Christ and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Those are just widely, widely used books. I'm going to go on. Oh no, I'm not. Cat, Cat Catherine. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Second Peter three, God is will, not willing that any should perish. Um, it's in the context of why has Jesus waited so long to come back, and it's giving a chance for the gospel to go to other people. But it, I think it still assumes that the gospel is going to go to people, and that's how they're going to be saved. So, Well, look, thanks for bearing with me on this. Uh, let's see if we can go on to the rest of this in the next ten minutes. Um, that, that, is, that, that is the idea of the necessity of the Bible for knowing how to be saved. Next And this has personal application to our life every day. Um, The Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Jesus answered, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We live not just on eating the food that we have in the morning, but on every word. So it's like we are to nourish our souls with it, in the same way we nourish our bodies with food every day, we're to take God's word in every day. Uh, where was I this morning? I was reading in Exodus 31, I think, about the Sabbath. And as I'm reading about that, God gave me some application to my own life, even though I think the Sabbath law is different today. But we're nourished by it. And, and if you're not reading the Bible every day, <clears throat> you're starving yourself spiritually. Um, so we need it. It's no empty word for you, but it's your very life, the words that Moses are giving the people. By this word you shall live long in the land you're going over to possess. We, we live by the word of God. It guides us. We're to long for pure spiritual milk that I think is the word that by it you may grow up to salvation. So it's necessary for maintaining spiritual life. It's necessary for certain knowledge of God's will. That is, all people have a conscience But that conscience can lead people or mislead people. Conscience in a cannibal society, people have a seared or calloused conscience against eating other people. And you think, how horrible could that be? But different societies have dull conscience in different areas. In our society, we have a dulled conscience about sexual immorality. We have a dulled conscience about lying and telling falsehoods. And so different societies differ. Their consciences are a guide, but they're unreliable. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it for an unbeliever? And so people's um, hearts excuse them sometimes, even though they're doing wrong. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so we need the Bible to understand God's will. The Bible is necessary so that we can have clear and definite statements about God's will. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we're given the Bible so that we can be obedient to God. Blessed are those whose ways blame us, who walk in the law of the Lord. Here we find out truly what God wants for us. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So... Uh he's given this to us so we know what he wants us to do. I say the Bible is ultimately necessary for certain knowledge about anything. Why? <laughs> Did you ever believe something you thought was true and then you found out later that it wasn't true? Actually, I gave the idea of uh, what day were you born. Somebody in here had a birth certificate that he found out later was mistaken. Who was that? Is that person here today? Somebody came up to me. Or I used this. I said, what? Ray, what day were you born on? You don't have to tell the year. Oh, but uh, what's the date? I mean, what uh, calendar? What uh, is March 1st or 3rd? Oh, 20th. March 20th. March 20th. And then I say, are you sure? Well, yeah, it was my birth certificate. Well, people ever make a mistake on birth certificate? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the example. So even something you think you know really well, you might find out later, oh, wait a minute, we made a mistake. It was really the 23rd or something. So, um <laughs> So, uh, and I used that example a few months ago, and somebody came up and said, You're right, it happened on my birth certificate. Well, um, so something we think we know really well, we might find out later information that changes our mind. And so, the only way you can guarantee against that is if you know every fact in the whole universe. Then you know nothing new is going to surprise you. What's the hope? Mark, you're going to know every fact in the whole universe? Not likely. There's one other way to be sure about things, though. If you have, if there's somebody you know who knows every fact in the whole universe and speaks truthfully to you, well, that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? (laughs) And that's what we have in the Bible. God knows everything. And so, in a way, this is the basis for the most confident knowledge that we can have because it's an omniscient person who is speaking truth to us. But the Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists. Now this, here we come back to, can people know anything about God at all without the Bible? Yes, they can have some knowledge that God exists. They can have some knowledge of his attributes. Just looking at themselves and the world around them, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You look at the heavens you say, somebody must have made this. And uh, God didn't leave Himself without witness. He did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. You go in the grocery store and you look at all the fruits and vegetables. Something in you should say, "There's a good God who shows His love to us." Look at all the food. See, Paul is saying that the, the, he's saying this to people who don't aren't Jews. They were they were Greeks, and they didn't they didn't have the Bible. But he's saying God left Himself a witness that He is a powerful God. And what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, that is, they knew that God existed and they knew some of his character, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the Bible is not necessary for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. They can know that there is, there is a right and wrong. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to um, steal. I mean, people have a sense of conscience, though I gave some examples where it's distorted. Yet even in a society where people kind of excuse lying, they don't like to be lied to. <laughs> and they excuse sexual immorality, but they don't want anybody to cheat on them. See, so there's a sense of right and wrong that people have. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. People know that. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts excuse or often excuse them. Paul is saying that people's conscience gives them a sense of right and wrong. So they know there is a God. They know that he has some moral standards. They have some sense that, they ha- that there is good and evil. And uh, so general revelation is what they have. That's given to all people generally. It comes through observing nature and seeing God's history, influence in history and an inner sense of God's existence and His laws. It's a great blessing for society. It prevents unchecked sin from destroying everyone. People have a sense of that they should do right, and there's an accountability. But they don't have an answer for how to deal with their sin. Special revelation refers to God's words addressed to specific people, the words of the Bible or the prophets, uh, or words of personal address. So we have those two things. But as I explained above, Scripture nowhere indicates that people can know the gospel or know the way of salvation through general revelation. And this is, again, this is what has given great motivation for missions. But I'm going to come back to this. It's a difficult doctrine for us to think about or explain to others, we shouldn't abandon it because it's unpopular. Now I'm going to say one final thing. Some of you say, well, might not this be possible? Might not this be possible? Might not this be possible? Maybe. What I'm saying is, I just, I don't see in here that God wants us to depend on those might-not-this-be-possible kinds of ideas. It's it's that there's a message given here that's good news for the whole world, and this is what we are to proclaim. Okay. Well, now, I've had this hymn going through my mind for the last day or so. It's an old hymn that you may never have heard, I don't know, and it's to the tune of the Eternal Father Strong to Save, the Navy hymn, Eternal Father, strong to save me. Okay, so let's try this. Um, it is, is kind of heavy, too. It it's, sounds like it's really hard because it's, oh, quickly come, dread judge of all. But every verse goes through hey, the world around us looks really bad, but wait, Jesus is coming back and it's all going to be right. So it's a hymn of hope in the end. Let's let's try this.